feel like the whole issue is about Catholic healthcare system. It's a pretty complicated issue. And um, if people are unfamiliar with the ethical and religious directives, I think a lot of listeners, yeah. I think they have a grasp of what happened with the St. Joseph system. I mean, there, there was a woman who ran for Congress in Newport Beach, who was mm -hmm. one of the people who, who protested outside of Hogue Hospital. Well, I, you know what, and I read your book, I kept thinking of how Karen Armstrong, she calls herself a recovering nun, and how she talks about mythos and logos and that how, and I, I kept thinking when I read your book, that sort of the certainty with which the Christian nationalist kinds of the ideology is sort of proselytizing. The movement includes a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. It's really not, and I wouldn't even call all of those who kind of support the movement dominionists, but although some people do. And okay, that's yeah, right, choice. right. Well, I, because I think of the, I think of the DeVos family as like the check writing Calvinists that are keeping this going. <laughs> so, <laughs> they so, are one of the really important funders so, of, yeah, some aspects of the movement for sure. So there's a couple of things as we're winding down the discussion is I wanted to know if you thought any of the movement politics of the last two weeks or other developments, how you think this infrastructure of Christian nationalism will continue. There's, I think, in, in my measurement, there is a tremendous asymmetry of mobilization. There are progressive grassroots who, they look to me like they're using slingshots against an army tank, which is the infrastructure of the religious right. What possibilities do you see from this moment forward, Catherine Stewart? I think the movement is cause for alarm, but I don't think it should be cause for despair. You're right that the right has invested in all the tools of modern campaign infrastructure, data, media, and messaging, but these everyone isn't free to invest the, in these tools as well. And I'm you know, seeing a lot, of, a lot of activism in the last, you know, certainly last few years that I hadn't seen in like the previous like five or six years. I think there's solutions that we can do as individuals and other solutions that we can pursue on a, you know, collectively, I think on an individual level, holding yourself accountable to vote and then holding those around you accountable as well to vote. If you reject the values of domination and division that this movement represents, you know, get to the ballot box and, and vote those values as well. I think people of faith can ask ourselves what kind of ideology it is that we're supporting, one that divides and trains its hate on groups of people, or one that is trying to spread love and justice. I think that um, on a collective level, we can't really begin to meet the challenges as we face as a society unless we really understand what it is that we're up against. I hate to say mm -hmm. this, but I think reading my book is a great way to start. It sort of shows... It's a, a manual as I opened. Yeah, it's, it's a manual. Yeah, it shows how they did it. And uh, those who reject the politics of conquest and division are free to pursue some uh, similar strategies with differences, of course. But... Um, you know, well, I, uh, I'm, I'm concerned about there's two very well-seated institutional arrangements at this point that we're facing. 
that one is the depleting of the public education funds. And, and then the other is, this is two, two huge things to, to end the, the interview with. The other is how successfully Leonard Leo with the Federal Society has seeded the judiciary with a very conservative dogmatic bench in a large share of the federal courts. We may see even younger replacements of older conservatives. We, we, I don't know how far that Mitch McConnell will get with that. But I wonder, even if the progressives or the moderates are able to return to the majority in the legislative branch and the executive branch, that Leonard Leo's fait accompli with the judiciary could create a sort of a legal machinery to challenge laws and executive directives that would would come from democratic majorities that might be voted in in 2020. Well, we know they'll try. I mean, a lot of the movement's legal strategy does come from these very well-funded legal advocacy groups like um, the Alliance Defending Freedom or Leonard Leo's Federal Society is uh, sort of a grooming machine in a way for uh, right-wing judicial ideologues and they offer, they spend a lot of money trying to get them confirmed and promote their careers. But, you know, the right has trained the rank and file to vote on the issue of judges. I've been to right-wing events where speakers stand up and they say, this election is about judges, judges, judges. Mm -hmm. They know very well that if you can get people to vote on the issue of judges, you'll overlook a lot of things and a front runner that you might not particularly approve of. So I think for some number of the rank and file, it's a little bit of a trade-off. They vote for a political candidate they might not love, but he's promising to end abortion or put in judges who are going to you know, end abortion. So they agree to pull the lever for him. I think that those who you know, reject that kind of the hyper-conservative candidates that the movement favors would do well to think you know, long-term, to start thinking about the issue of judges, vote on the issue of judges. Don't just think, do I want to have a beer with this person? Do I like them on a personal level? Are they too young? Are they too old? Did they say something stupid back in 1986? You know, think about who are they going to appoint to head the cabinet? Who are they going to appoint? You know, what kind of judicial appointments are they going to make? So just to be thinking on those longer-term issues, I think, is really key to turning out the vote. Look, I think in a country where 40 to 50% of people don't turn out to vote and an additional number have their votes taken away from them really through a race-based gerrymandering and voter suppression and the other types of dirty tricks that we've seen in Atlanta most recently, you don't need a majority to win elections. All you need is a committed and organized minority of the population So one way to get a handle on the numbers is to look at the work of somebody like George Barna. He's one of the top pollsters in the movement. Yes. The most committed religious right voters are a group that Barna calls SAGE CONS. It's a label that stands for an acronym, Spiritually Active Governance Engaged Conservatives. They're disproportionately involved in the political process and vote in extremely high numbers. So listen to this. He calls, he numbers SAGE CONS adult stage cons uh, at 10% of the population, but he said 91% turned out to vote in 2016. 
and 93% of those cast their vote for Trump. I mean, these are extraordinary numbers. And it really shows that, you know, a relatively small number of people can really change the, the course of a nation. Well, the political scientists have a theory for that, Catherine, and I looked for that, and you can put that in your next publication, <laughs> the public choice theory or log rolling. So it's a matter of how concentrated a public interest group or a body politic is, how concentrate, how intensely they are signed on to a particular measure, and that intensity will drive the outcome, and that the countervailing interests will be more dispersed, and so it will have a difficult time mobilizing to be more successful than that intensely involved, smaller You're percentage. Right. I, I think it's e eager to unite a smaller group around a more radical core than it may be to unite a larger group that has much more disparate interests. I mean, this cohort, the Sage Cons, is. Barner describes it, really want to see their values reflected in policy. And they'll say they punch well above their political weight right, in terms oh. of numbers. But you know what? The right has invested in all the tools of uh, modern democracy, modern democratic you know, campaign infrastructure to dismantle democracy. But I continue to think that those same tools can be used to restore it. So an answer to one of my questions was the constituents can read your book. That's one thing that can be done to, to secure some constitutional protections. And I want to give you an action. <laughs> and take, well, take action. Well, I'm always looking for every, every UC Irvine member of the faculty and administration that they always get it. They can take a bite at that. Do be sure to vote Apple for, for good measure. And the sooner, the better with what's, involved with a, a mounting dramatic political season coming. So I want you, Catherine, to give us the details about your appearance with the women for Orange County. They meet once a month and you're going to be their vaunted June speaker. That's so exciting. I really can't wait. So you can email me and I can let you know where you can get the Zoom invitation. It's on June 20th at two o'clock on Pacific Daylight Time. And you will be talking about your book. And is there any, any other little um, nuggets you want to say you want to make sure you cover? Well, I just want to thank everybody for listening. And thanks so much to you, Claudia, for your attention to these important issues. And uh, please tune in on June 20th. I really hope to see you. And uh, please don't hesitate to ask questions. I'm hoping to have plenty of time to hear from you. Okay. Well then uh, folks, you can email me at cshamba at kuc.org and I will mail, I'll email you the, the Zoom invitation. I'm honoring that women for doesn't want me to blast it right out here. Thank you, Captain, for all of your time. Take care. All right. Have a wonderful day. Thank okay. you so much. Bye-bye.